Welcome listeners to the NK News podcast recorded on March 23rd, 2018 here in Seoul, South Korea. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Joining me here today in the studio is Dr. Catherine Weathersby, Professor of History at Korea University and an American. Welcome, Dr. Weathersby. Thank you very much. Today we'll be discussing the Korean War, its history and its relevance today. Before we get started, I need to tell you all about our NK News subscription giveaway valued at $300 US dollars. That will enable you to read the stories that we refer to in any podcast, as well as lots of other excellent information available at nknews.org. One random reviewer on the iTunes or Apple podcast app per week will win that free membership. So do please review us after this episode and you might win. You can download or subscribe to our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and all other good podcast platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Now, Dr. Weathersby, can I call you Catherine? Of course. All right, let's talk about the Korean War, Catherine. We all know that it was fought from June 25th, 1950 to July 27, 1953. But what precisely is its current status? Where are we in terms of a war, a peace, a truce, an armistice? What is it? The war is still going on. Unfortunately, we have uh, just an armistice, which is a ceasefire for the purpose of creating a peace treaty. Um, We've never, never created a peace treaty, so we have just this temporary ceasefire that's lasted since 53. So it's a bit like you're watching a movie, you put it on pause to go and make the coffee, but then you never make the coffee <laughs> and you never start the movie again. Well, it's, it's a little more than that. The configuration of the war is in large measure still in place. I mean, American forces are still in the South, mm-hmm. certainly not in the numbers they were during the war, but nonetheless, they're here. Uh, the UN commands still exist. Uh, the Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission still exists. So all, all of this structure is there. And also the level of military confrontation is extremely high, and it has remained so across the border. Who were the uh, the original signatories to the armistice back in 1953? It was the U.S. acting under the name of the United Nations. South Korea did not sign it. That's kind of an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, the South Korean leader didn't want to admit that the war could end without victory, without uh, unification of the country. And so he refused to sign it and tried to block the armistice, actually. And then uh, for the North, it was signed by a South, a, a North Korean and a Chinese general. Now, for South Korea to not sign the armistice, does that give, has that given North Korea justification for refusing to speak to South Korea all these years about having a treaty or... Mm-hmm. or I mean, in in some ways it does, but I think that's a kind of flimsy situation, actually, because the fact of the matter is South Korea was a belligerent, obviously, in yeah. the war. And so, you know, the armistice is a temporary agreement between military commanders yeah. just for the the armies to stop shooting at each other so that they can carry on peace talks. But that doesn't rule out later having some other, you know, overture to another belligerent. Now, uh, my memory's a bit hazy, but was there a time when North Korea said we're walking away from the armistice, we're not, we're no longer a party to this? Yes, yeah, yeah, they did happen. When was that, you know? Oh, Sorry to put you uh, on the spot here. Yeah, I, I would have to look it Decade? up. It happened more than, um, it happened more than once, actually. Ah. Yeah. So several um, times North Korea said, forget about it, we're no longer part of this. Yeah. 
as a threat that they might escalate the tension if uh, whatever the issue was wasn't resolved in their favor. Now, you became somewhat famous, uh, I think about 20, 25 years ago, because of a disagreement with uh, Bruce Cummings, who wrote the two-volume Origins of the Korean War. This had something to do with the, the question of who started the Korean War. And later, I, I think I recall Dr. Cummings arguing that it doesn't really matter who started the war. Uh, the start is relevant. How do you respond to that? And that's an extremely odd thing to say about a war. Um, <laughs> uh, Bruce Cummings tried to find out how the war started, and he wasn't able to after two very thick volumes. Rather than saying, well, we need to keep looking, he just said, oh, well, you know, nobody should look at that question. I haven't been able to figure it out, so therefore no one should talk about it. Uh, so I think it's actually rather silly. But of course, it's extremely important how the decision was made to carry out a, a conventional large-scale military offensive. That was something very different from the border fighting that had been going on in 49. As we no, now, from the Russian uh, records, this was a very deliberate decision made after a lot of deliberation, a lot of uh, investigation of the circumstances, and it was made between the Soviets and the North Koreans, with China involved. Now, the war raged on for three years, but uh, isn't it true that Kim Il-sung really wanted to, to finish it after about a year or so? Yeah, the American bombing was so heavy. Uh, he began appealing to the Soviets and the Chinese by early 52 uh, to bring the war to an end because North Korea was suffering so badly mm -hmm. from the bombing. It's understandable. Yeah, huh? of course. And it was clear that they weren't going to win. All right, It was a stalemate. Right. The, the lines had already more yeah. or less settled in, hadn't they? That's yeah. right. It was clear they weren't going to push the line in any significant way. So why, you know, just keep being bombed and bombed and bombed. But by that time, the Soviets and the Chinese both thought the war was useful to them mm. for a variety of reasons. And so they insisted the North Koreans keep fighting. How was it useful for the Soviets? It tied down American forces in uh, Korea so that they couldn't uh, do any sort of action in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, which gave the Soviets time to rearm East, the East European satellite countries. Stalin was very explicit about that. In a mm -hmm. meeting uh, already in early 51, in January 51, he called all the political and military leaders of uh, the East European satellite countries to Moscow for a secret meeting and told them they had two to three years mm -hmm. uh, to prepare while the U.S. was bogged down in Korea. And they had to use that time wisely. And they did. And the Soviets did as well. So massive rearmament in 1952. And how was it useful for, uh, for China? Well, first of all, uh, in a more immediate sense, the war in Korea was the occasion for transforming the Chinese army from a guerrilla army into a modern army. That was extremely important, mm -hmm. uh, and that was accomplished over the course of the Korean War. So weapons arrived from the Soviet Union, uh, the most up-to-date weapons, and the Chinese army got trained in how to use them. They also learned modern methods of logistics mm -hmm. and communications and so forth. Um, Mao referred to the war as the best military school possible. And he made a point of rotating as many um, units from the PLA through 
uh, through the theater in Korea as possible so that they would all go to this school. Uh, So that was part of it. But also he thought that this was very useful for the worldwide revolutionary movement. Mm. China was fighting heroically against a much more powerful adversary. Uh, It was doing so successfully. But also at great cost, wasn't it? Yeah, but that's no problem. China. Well, well, Mao lost his son. And... Well, yeah, but China had plenty of people as far as Mao was concerned. Mm. You know, he was a true revolutionary, completely committed to the revolutionary cause, and he thought this was uh, advancing it. Right. Well, now, what's the state of Korean War historiography today? What Are, are there any matters of substantial disagreement left anymore, or are there things that we don't know yet, mysteries to be uncovered? The big questions that occupied people earlier uh, have been answered. Uh, So on the one hand, we have interesting new work on a kind of smaller scale. For example, some work in provincial archives in China that's shedding some light on who the Chinese people's volunteers were. Uh Uh, And, And whether they were so voluntary? Well, we know they weren't voluntary, but uh, um, showing that they were disproportionately people who had served in the Nationalist Army, so we might as well get rid of those people. They're troublesome anyway. Cannon fodder. Exactly. Then some interesting work being done on um, the role of Taiwan, Mm. uh, the use the U.S. made of people from Taiwan to go to prisoner of war camps in the South and... For ideological work, yeah. uh, propaganda. Among and, the Chinese soldiers. To convert the Chinese soldiers. Yeah, yeah, interesting things like that. There is a lot of work remaining to be done from Russian archives and mm. Chinese archives, and it continues uh, to be done in China, but at a fairly slow pace. Uh, in Russia, it's um, possible to do some new work. I'm happy to uh, note that the project we are doing at Korea University mm is making some inroads in uh, Russian archives. So that promises uh, to be quite fruitful. Are you able to tell us anything uh, briefly about um, any possible Japanese involvement in the Korean War? I know it's a very mm. controversial question. Yeah. What was uh, We know that um, some Japanese uh, navigators were you know, sailing the ships around from Japan for Operation Chromite. I think that's more or less widely acknowledged. But yeah. what about in combat roles? No, there were some minesweepers that were staffed by Japanese people just because they knew the harbors, they knew the ships. Um, so they were used in a small way in, when they were needed. I have um, read a lot of North Korean comic books uh, in my own research, and a, a recurring theme in them is that uh, the Americans supposedly bring former Japanese spy masters back to Korea to reactivate the old spy rings in North Korea, but now serving the new masters, the Americans, rather than the Japanese. Well, it makes a great story. The way the Soviets and the Chinese both were super sensitive to any possibility of the U.S. bringing Japanese personnel to Korea. Uh, There was one time when I saw a decision being taken, or at least a discussion, at the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the highest level, about a report that some Japanese military personnel had been brought to Korea. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, given the state of Japan in 1950, 51, it's it's, it's strangely disconnected from reality. After the armistice was signed in 1953, 
Do we have any evidence to show that Kim Il-sung ever considered or planned to restart the war by himself, or that he asked China uh, or the Soviet Union to assist in uh, reuniting the Korean Peninsula? No, we don't see any evidence of um, him doing that. Briefly, uh, deterrence worked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was significant deterrence on the other side of the border uh, to prevent him from trying to do that. Also, the Soviets and the Chinese were certainly not interested in re-engaging in a large-scale military conflict in Korea. So they made it clear they were not going to support Mm. any such thing. So instead, he relied on fomenting an uprising in the South through decapitation, same kind of thing we're talking about these days with North Korea. Oh, yes. Yeah, somehow if we just kill the leader, you know, the people will rise up and want to join us. You're referring to the uh, 1968 Blue House Raid. That's right. So this was the plan North Korea carried out in 1968, trying to kill uh, President Park. Uh, And then they did the same thing in 1983 with a bombing in Burma, trying to kill Chun Tuhuan. That was a close shave, wasn't it? Yeah. John Dewan, was he, he was minutes from, yeah. or meters from being killed. Yeah. Of course, in both cases, it it just hardened the resolve yeah. of the government and many of the people to resist any North Korean um, overture. Uh, so it didn't work. But that idea continued at least into the 80s. Mm. And then by the early 90s, everything was falling apart with the collapse of communism. And we don't see any such thing since then. Well, now let's turn our attention to the current situation. Uh, we're recording this interview in late March, March 23rd to be precise, and there are supposed to be an inter-Korean summit and a U.S.-North Korea summit coming up in the next month or two. We don't have exact dates just yet. But is now a good time to be thinking about the Korean War? Is it still relevant when all the major players are long since dead? Oh, I think it's more relevant than ever. The U.S. has talked about regime change in North Korea since... Uh the years of the George W. Bush administration. Just today, it was announced that someone who had served in that administration and was one of the leading voices in favor of regime change in North Korea has just been named National Security Advisor to the U.S. President. This is former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton. That's right. The man with the mustache. The man with the mustache, yeah. We can expect uh, to see... Much more discussion of this. Um, He has not changed his views. So this idea is very much uh, with us. To my mind, looking at this as a historian of the war, I very much regret to say that the aggressive side uh, today is my own country, Mm. uh, to my great dismay. But what strikes me is that just as North Korea so exaggerated the possibility of success in 1950, the U.S. government also seems to be exaggerating the possibility of success. Yeah, this this can be quick. It can be easy. We can use our overwhelming technological superiority. Our gra- I mean, we do have very impressive weapons, yeah. you know, stealth bombers and so forth. Uh, we can use all of that and we can get things to be the way we want them to be. We can get rid of this government that we don't like, that says makes all of these threats against the United States. We can, you know, it'll all work out. All we have to do is use our military might and the problem will be solved. That was also the way of thinking of the North Korean side Mm. in 1950. The result was that North Korea was utterly destroyed, completely destroyed physically. 
over a three-year period of time. You know, it could not be more dramatic Mm. the way that way of thinking um, failed. If there is any kind of resort to military force, it's impossible to imagine anything other than utter catastrophe here in Korea. Well, I guess you've already answered my uh, my next my follow-up question, which is what's um, what's your interpretation of Trump's stance on North Korea broadly uh, and denuclearization more specifically. But if you had his ear, if you could give him a presentation or sit down over a burger and a Diet Coke with him before the summit, uh, what advice would you tell him? What, what would you say to him? Well, he famously doesn't listen to advisors, so it seems like he likes uh, John Bolton to be there because Bolton has the same impulses that he has. He will listen to people who want to do what he wants to do anyway. He's not shown any uh, willingness to listen to people who tell him other things. What what about his relationship with his alliance partner, South Korea, and President Moon specifically? Do you think he gives President Moon any leeway or or slack to, you know, um, sort of lead the way in the dialogue? Probably not. It's hard to imagine him doing that, actually. He sees everything on the basis of strength, size, power. The big guy calls the shots. Mm Mm-hmm. President Moon is not the big guy. Trump is the big guy. Uh, she is a big guy. So he would give respect to she. Same with Putin, of course, uh, but not to either of the Korean leaders. Mm. What about Japan's Prime Minister Abe? No, I, I can't see him playing any significant role. Mm. Yeah. The question of denuclearization of the North is not a simple question. One of the issues in the summit is that Trump apparently does not understand what the North means by the term denuclearization and does not understand the steps that would have to be taken toward that, even if it's being done according to an American definition of denuclearization. So the likelihood is that he would demand something that's not reasonable, that's not going to happen, that's not logistically possible, Mm All right. And then when the North uh, doesn't come through with that, then he will have an excuse to resort to military force. That's the danger. Yeah. That's the danger, I think. Let's just talk about the, the inter-Korean summit first. What do you hope to see from that? Well, there's much more possibility right, of constructive things, positive things coming out of that summit. There have been other periods, two periods in particular I can think of, when South Korea and North Korea have turned to each other, when uh, the big powers of the region were threatening. They did it after the Sino-American rapprochement in the early 70s, and they did it after the crazy events of 1991. So I was not at all surprised in January when um, there was this quick rapprochement Mm. using the Olympics as as an occasion. The the two Koreas can do all sorts of things to engage one another in ways that could make it harder uh, for the U.S. to take action. You know, if there are significant numbers of South Koreans, for example, in North Korea doing um, something, business or, or whatever, uh, then presumably it would be harder uh, to lob missiles over to North Korea. I imagine that sort of thinking is going on in Seoul and and Pyongyang. Yeah. That can be useful. We have to imagine that the joint command in South Korea is, because it is a joint command, Mm -hmm. um, 
And the South Koreans are will be trying to put as much pressure on the U.S. Uh, to to consult with them before any kind of military action, to consider all the ramifications of any kind of military action. So I do hope that structure can serve as a restraining force. Also, the UN command is mm. still here. Some European countries are stepping up to try to mediate the conflict. That can be very useful. Yeah, so there is there are some causes for hope then. Yes. Would you say you're cautiously optimistic or completely agnostic about how things will go in the next two summits? It's hard to imagine the U.S., if a U.S.-North Korea summit actually happens. We don't know whether right, we it don't know will. Yeah. Yeah. Or where or when. Or where or when, yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine that going well. Trump will want to negotiate in person, but he will not have learned the details of the issues involved. Because we know that he doesn't read, he doesn't learn the details of any of the issues that face him. In principle, the North Korean leadership can uh, take advantage of that. But whether they would actually be able to do that, I don't know, remains to be seen. Mm. I don't know how skillful their people are. But it's hard to imagine it resulting in uh, something positive for the U.S. and South Korea. Mm. Okay, well, um, I was doing a bit of reading of Korean War history myself for the last couple of days, and I... I found it was interesting that uh, on June 16th, just nine days before the war broke out uh, in 1950, uh, North Korea had offered a prisoner exchange with South Korea. Uh, North Korea would give Cho Man-shik back, uh, a famous non-communist mm-hmm. nationalist, in exchange for two communists who were held in the South, Kim Sam-yong and uh, Lee Ju-ha. Uh, but South Korea rejected the proposal. And, uh, you know, just nine short days later, uh, the war started. Now, Around the 16th, you think that with the level of planning that was involved, that the top, the upper echelons of North Korea's military leadership must have known then that the war was only a few days away. But they kept the, uh, these talks for prisoner exchange going. So thinking about now and 2018, we're in a period of apparently thawing relations and talks. But this comes not long after talks of preemptive strikes and bloody noses and kinetic action. In South Korea, I would say that there's a, an assumption that talks mean military action will not occur. Is that a reasonable assumption? Well, presumably it means they won't take place as the talks are actually happening. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean that, that it couldn't happen very soon after the talks end. That's the danger that I referred to earlier, yeah. I think. A failed... U.S.-North Korea summit could make military action more likely. Right. It could provide a pretext. Right. Yeah. Now, every spring, the United States Forces Korea and the Republic of Korea hold joint drills. The Fall Eagle exercise, which is a combined field training exercise, and Key Resolve, which is a command post exercise, uh, are both due this year to start on April 1st and may last for anywhere up to a month. The size and length of both exercises have not, as I understand it, been announced, but Both are reportedly scaled back from previous years, and usually North Korea loudly expresses that these exercises are, in fact, preparations for a second Korean War. Do you see any justification in these complaints by North Korea? Uh, No, I don't. Uh, I understand, though, uh, why the North sees them that way. Um, For one thing, their spin on the war, ever since the war and even during the war, was that it was begun by the South. Uh, The war was an attack by South Korea supported by the United States on North Korea. It was an invasion of North Korea, right? The opposite of what actually occurred. And so, but that is what they teach and that's what their people believe. And so therefore, 
it's logical that they would see these exercises as preparation for a new invasion. It's very useful to them to claim that that's what they are. Much easier to keep control over the people when they are supposedly threatened Yeah, yeah, from the outside. Uh, but in actuality, no, I don't think that's what they are. They are important part of the deterrence that has been quite vigorous and effective here in the South. Uh, it's a joint command, which means that they need to practice working together. Yeah. American units and South Korean units. Also, there are constantly new um, systems, new weapons, new communication systems and so forth that have to be tested, have to be practiced. Do you imagine that Kim Jong-un knows the reality about how the Korean War started? Do you think his father or grandfather mm-hmm. told him? It's an interesting question. Mm. I've, I've wondered about that from time to time. I don't know. Mm. I just don't know. Yeah. Now, this year... Kim Jong-un has said, reportedly said, this is according to South Korean sources, Mm. has reportedly said that um, he understands that the exercises must go on, therefore we assume that he won't make much of a farce or test a nuclear weapon or or test a missile launch in Mm. response to the the exercises. But that seems like quite a turnaround from the response from North Korea during previous year's exercises. What do you think has brought that change on? Well, it's part of uh, his new approach that began in January. All right. Uh, in response to the threats uh, from the United States. Yeah. Now, it's possible that Bolton's arrival, you know, mm. whispering into Trump's ear that regime change is the way to go, could stop that and move to a more forceful posture from the North in order to deter uh, regime change, what they've been doing for quite some time now. Yeah, now, Dr. Andre Lankov, who uh, has been on our podcast twice, He's on record as saying that he believes a combination of President Trump's bellicose rhetoric and harsh sanctions imposed by the world community, and especially this time by China, that these are exactly the things that have pushed Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table. It sounds like you agree with that. Yes, I do. I think that's quite right. Yeah. On the one hand, you're, you know, you're normally quite critical of, of President Trump and his, mm. his policies and actions. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it does seem like we've had at least one positive, t- temporary, uh, provisional positive result from his uh, his warlike words. Well, that's true, although it's a very dangerous way to bring that about. It doesn't quite justify it. But I'm pleased that South Korea has acted very forcefully to respond to the North Korean initiative and try to take steps to shift the direction of events. Where would you like to see things a year from now on the Korean Peninsula? Well, there's a real chance that a year from now, Donald Trump will no longer be president of the United States. Distinct possibility. Okay, I will, um, I'll leave aside the whys and wherefores. Uh, that's for another podcast. Yeah. But, but okay, um, if that does happen... If that happens, um, then it's possible uh, for us to have uh, quite a different approach uh, to the Korean Peninsula. As long as North Korea feels it needs nuclear weapons for its deterrence, it's hard to see any scenario by which they're going to give them up. It seems much more reasonable to begin moving towards arms control. Maybe we've done that, right, for decades, mm. right, throughout the Cold War. It's possible to do that, uh, to diminish the risk that they would be used, to slow down the, the speed with which they're being developed, the numbers that will be developed, things like that. So uh, that seems much more realistic than a goal of complete 
denuclearization. What I would like to see is calmer heads being in charge of this process, a return to reliance on uh, people who actually know about Mm. these events, a rebuilding of the State Department, and of course, a very careful and respectful coordination with South Korea. Now, are you a betting woman? (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) So presumably you wouldn't put money on this happening then? Oh, I might put money on Trump being removed from office. I think that possibility is quite strong. Hmm. Okay. As far as it's possible to know these things, what do you think the the long-term goal of the North Korean government and Kim Jong-un actually is? Is it merely survival in its current form without threat from outside? Is it reunification with South Korea? What is it? I think it's survival with a better economy. Survival necessitates a better economy, but survival and economic development. Some people argue, all right, um, that North Korea still has the goal of unification under its control. I I just don't see that. Perhaps I'm wrong, but that's not what it looks like Mm. uh, to me. You know, it's such a weirdly unrealistic scenario. (laughs) So what? You know, the minister of uh, industry in North Korea is going to take over Samsung. I mean, what you know, the whole thing is so strange mm-hmm. and, and completely unworkable and unrealistic that, you know, makes no sense to me. But survival, which includes an improved economy, is quite believable, quite a kind of sensible, realistic goal. One can imagine them pursuing that. Now, tell us a bit about this uh, Korean War Archive project that you're involved with at Korea University. Hmm. Uh, yeah, what's, what's it all about? It's a long-term project mm-hmm. uh, to create a digital archive. Uh, we will put it online. The international history of uh, the Korean War. For now, the materials are coming from the U.S., China, and Russia. Uh, We will expand that as we can. Mm -hmm. Uh, The materials are being translated into Korean. So the focus, it's a a project going on here. So the focus is to enable people in Korea to be able to do research Mm -hmm. on this most crucial aspect of their modern history. Uh, presumably all available material that's already in Korean is, is part of this archive as well? Is that's it? right. Well, the first thing the project did actually was to uh, make an inventory of all okay. of that. Because what the situation was, was different groups around Korea had gathered different bodies of yes. of documents, but nobody quite knew what all was there. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was the first step. And there were some Korean documents in, in D.C. as well in the archives? Uh, the capture documents, Capture mean? documents, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those are not all that useful for the war, but oh. um, um, yeah, they don't have any high-level records. Uh, the high-level records were destroyed before uh-huh. the Americans could snatch them up. But it's, So the project is a kind of a clearinghouse of all the info that we have on North Korea in, in any language from any source. That's right. Altogether. Plus doing new research, particularly in Russia. Well, that sounds like a great resource. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, much needed. I think it'll be uh, very good for Korea. And it'll be accessible to researchers from around the world? Sure, it'll be up on koreanwar.com. Okay, koreanwar.com. Yep. Uh, when? Do we have a timeline for that? Um, not quite sure okay. when it will be operational.
Okay, so thank you again to this week's studio guest, Dr. Catherine Weathersby of Korea University, for coming on the NK News podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee of NK News. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer on the iTunes or Apple podcast app per week will win a free NK News membership. So please review us after listening and you might win. And also you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. And we'll hear us next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.